Norman Oller is a German New York Times best-selling author, novelist, and screenwriter. He is the author of a number of novels, such as Mitte and Ponte City, as well as nonfiction books, The Bohemians, and Blitzed, Drugs in Nazi Germany, which we're going to discuss today. Norman, welcome. Very happy to be talking to you. Not just Nazis and not just drugs, but Nazis on drugs. What an unbelievable way to open the 2024 season of the Smart Cookies podcast. And of course, what a deliciously demented topic in general. I mean, one would certainly think that these two terms are pretty pretty much mutually exclusive, right? But your book not just proves otherwise, it kind of details how almost uh, symbiotic the two actually were. But maybe before we go to tripping Wehrmacht soldiers and the story of Adolf, the drug addict, let's create just a little bit of a backdrop to the story. Nazis came to power in 1933, succeeding the infamous Weimar Republic, which they derided as being totally decadent with its cabaret shows, open attitudes toward towards sexuality and flourishing of what they called degenerate art. But what did Nazis think of drugs and drug use in general? Well, Nazis um, basically hated drugs because they connected drugs with the excesses of the Weimar Republic. And the Weimar Republic was not a system that they appreciated. The only drug that the Nazis in fact embraced was alcohol. They started to uh, attempt to get into power in Germany already in the 20s. And this is the so-called beer hall putsch in Munich, uh, where they were all drunk except Hitler, who never drank. And then um, in the morning after a drunken night, they, they tried to uh, take the Bavarian capital and miserably failed. So the Nazis, in fact, do come out of a drug. Uh, they come from, from beer drinking. Um, but all the other drugs um, were highly uh, suspicious to them. I read that during the Nazi regime, a general principle was that neighbors were encouraged to denounce drug users. Is that true? It is true. Um, the anti-drug stance of the Nazi government was uh, very important uh, to their ideology. And um, they connected um, their anti-drug policy with their anti-Semitic policies, claiming that Jews in Germany were using, were, have, were heavy drug users, were using more drugs than the non-Jewish uh, German population. And the Nazi regime was not only an authoritarian regime it was a totalitarian regime so it tried to you know get into the homes of each and everyone trying to control and regulate um, individual uh, even intimate behavior including sexual behavior and including um, you know uh, using narcotics or getting into some form of intoxication so yes they were encouraging um on Germans to rat on each other. What would what would happen to these people, to drug users, when they were busted? Would they force them into some sort of like mandated re rehabilitation centers, or were they just shipped off to some work camp or something even worse? Do we know? Well, they they were sent uh, usually to concentration camps. In the beginning, these concentration camps were not extermination camps yet, but they were you know, a new form of 
prison uh, that was uh, that that was used for all types of uh, people who would behave differently than the government uh, desired them to behave. For example, if you were uh, of a of a different uh, political opinion, um, if you were a leftist or even a communist, you were sent to one of these concentration camps that were already starting in 1933. Or if you were using drugs, or if you were homosexual. For drug users, they they uh, had uh, labels. So depending on what drug you used, you got a certain label. Like you could be, you could. You could have the cocaine label or the opioid label. Basically, um, drug abuse was was seen as uh, morally degenerate behavior that should be punished. Did they have like a classification which ones were the least offensive and which ones were the most offensive? Well, they just labeled you. They they, they didn't have like a ranking which drug is the worst, um, uh, but. Um, the Nazis installed a countrywide regime of uh, of, a, of, a, of a drug control, like a, a drug control system. The doctors were supposed to actually inform the officials if anyone had had a drug problem, and then the doctor had to say which drug problem it was. Oh, so no. this so the a, doctors were snitching on their patients as well. Yeah, which was quite unusual, or like it was novel because before that. The um, uh, usually there's a secrecy between doctor and patient that is yeah. not to be breached by the government, but this was also changed by the Nazis. So doctors had to report uh, on their patients if a drug problem or drug use uh, was detected. Which drugs did people use, for example, in the Weimar Republic the most? Was it cocaine? Did people smoke a little bit of weed? Was it something harder? Weed was actually not so popular in Germany. Um, popular drugs were basically drugs that were that were normal um, medicines um, developed by German companies. For example, heroin was actually legal for a long time in Germany because it was developed by the German company Bayer, which also. Um, uh, invented aspirin, for example, aspirin and heroin were the two top brands of the Bayer company. <clears throat> and um, bestsellers, yeah, they were both bestsellers. The same chemist uh, of the Bayer company actually found these two or developed these two substances, uh, as these two medicines, aspirin and heroin, within the span of ten days. Yeah, I, I would imagine that he would have gotten a raise, but um, I didn't find records about that. But he developed, you know, this one person alone within 10 days developed two you know, extremely famous um, medicines or drugs. We have to understand that after the uh, defeat in the, in the First World War uh, from 1918 onwards, for uh, actually until the, the Nazis took power in 1933, there were lots of uh, morphine users in Germany because many men came back from the front lines injured or had received morphine injections uh, during the war and became addicted to morphine. So morphine or any opiates, uh, you know, were were problems or were widely used uh, in in the Weimar Republic. So the the Nazis actually started to control these uh, this opiate use. So even with 
veterans from the First World War, they could go like, oh, they're addicts off to the camps, or were they being a bit more lenient when it came to them and, and still provided morphine, or was there a way for them to get morphine legally? Not really. I mean, it was quite harsh um, um, that um, even former soldiers uh, could be punished um, for still using morphine. I mean, when the Nazis took power, the, the war was already over for 15 years, so the attitude was right. that um, by then you should have, you know, overcome your pain or your you know, your problems. But in fact, you know, many people, because op opium or opiates are addictive, you know, still were addicted and still were using it and had formed a habit. So they these people were now suddenly being punished for it. Okay, as you recount in the book, the tables eventually turn and they turn quite dramatically in a span of just a couple of years after they kind of take power in 1933. A big chunk of the population under the Nazi regime will not only get a bit stoned legally, they will get they will get stoned legally on meth out of all things. Could you please tell us the pretty batshit crazy chronicle of Pervitin? Well, the Nazis never officially shifted their position on uh, drugs. Uh, but the, the irony is that a very potent drug was then developed by a Berlin-based company, the Temla company, uh, which they branded as Pavitin. And the Pavitin was nothing else but methamphetamine. So the, the content of Pavitin was methamphetamine. It was uh, developed by the head chemist of Temla. Uh, and patented in Germany in 1938, um, brought onto the market in 38. And uh, this pavitin was not seen as a uh, a drug. I mean, it was it was a normal medicine that you could buy even without a prescription in any pharmacy. Anyone could buy it over the counter. And um, because meth has such a unique you know uh, way of for functioning it, it became it became quite notorious very quickly in germany and a lot of people started using it and uh, started you know to rely on this um, artificial energy boost that would help them to you know stay on track or you know perform well in the workplace so pevitin was kind of like the oil in the engine of the of the fascist society. Wow. So what kind of ailments was pervitin supposed to cure or at least alleviate? Or was it just an energy boost, like you said? The Temna company wasn't sure at all because it was, you know, for them also new. Um, there was uh, amphetamine called Benzedrine on the market, which was, you know, still on the market in, in, the, in, in the U.S. in the later after the, the second world war but benzedrine was not so popular in germany um pevitin became very popular uh because temla made a huge uh, ad campaign around it a big uh, big marketing effort they wrote letters to each uh, doctor in germany sending each doctor um free pills of pevitin and asking the doctors to report back to them what the pills could be used for and uh, so the doctors tried them themselves and found that they you know uh, enhanced their mood and 
made them work more longer hours and um so it was kind of unclear what pavitin was supposed to be good for um so it was quickly seen as like a panacea like something that's good for for everything basically um then german universities became interested in it and uh in the late 30s uh, made the first studies on pavitin tried to find out what it actually does and they um for example found out that it reduces the need to sleep and that it reduces in higher dosages um fear and anxiety and promotes um self confidence so um people thought it's actually great um to use it negative um uh, side effects were were not found by german universities at first so from diarrhea to depression people are like let's let's go have some pervitin yeah it was used by all uh, segments of society <clears throat> there was even a pervitin laced chocolate on the market um uh, which contained quite a high uh, amount of methamphetamine per individual small piece and it, this was marketed especially for women so women who had to stay home uh in the uh, right wing you know uh nazi regime had more fun cleaning the house or you know had more energy to do the boring uh chores at home uh while men would use it in the workplace mainly to perform better um it was also claimed oh that it that it increases uh, libido which is actually uh, i guess true for crystal meth um that's why people take it also today now for, as a party drug and as a sex drug so this was also you know um advertised or spoken about that it would increase the libido especially of the woman uh which was a good thing for the for the dictatorship because they wanted to have you know wanted to create more germans more babies so it seemed like um crystal meth which was not called crystal meth at the time but simply methamphetamine or pavitin seemed to have been like the perfect uh drug for a capitalist performance driven modern society which was uh, nazi germany this is uh absolutely astounding i mean and if i remember correctly people didn't even need prescription for the first couple couple of years right anyone could just walk into a pharmacy and uh, buy as much pervitin as he or she wanted uh even children could buy it um only the german health minister later then became skeptical of pervitin because he realized that it's quite a potent substance right and in 1939 right. you had to have a prescription from your doctor I mean imagine going to your local pharmacy and getting some candy for your sore throat sore throat a couple of band-aids and then literally crystal meth for a really good time. I mean people must have begun to use it recreationally as well, right? Are there any reports of pervitin parties in Nazi Germany like I don't know people bringing their own pills and then going to to Grunewald Forest to get bamboozled yeah. or something? I didn't find any um and reports on that today we think of going to parties and you know taking pills or taking drugs but at the time this it wasn't the, it wasn't like that so pervitin was not you know seen as this as a party drug or anything like that it was it was more like drinking coffee or 
it didn't have it didn't have any aura of being like a drug and also the nightlife was you know especially when the war started the nightlife in germany was um not as free anymore not at all actually clubs had to close and there were even uh dancing was prohibited at a certain point in time oh my god so i think that the pavitin was more used to kind of get by in the during the your normal you know life it was also used as an antidepressant or just to cope uh with the with your anxiety during you know a very extreme dictatorship it's just so difficult for me to uh wrap my head around <laughs> this fact that if you change the word pervitin for crystal meth which is what it is and in our conversation you just get a completely different picture of what was going on i mean we also have to take into account that if we think of crystal meth today we have a lot of horror images in our head that are the product of uh, american propaganda anti-drug propaganda that with with crystal meth you're going to lose your teeth and you're going you're going to be become totally crazy and I mean all of these things are probably true if you consume black market crystal meth that was cooked up uh in some kind of breaking bad lab or even worse like some dude in some garage somewhere in the southern United States you know makes you know uh this 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 bottled they make it in plastic bottles they mix some kind of things and then out comes crystal meth I mean this is it was not like this in germany because the crystal meth that they consumed i mean the methamphetamine that the germans consumed was made by the temla company which was so it was a very clean product and each pill contained 3 milligrams of uh, methamphetamine so if you took one pill it was the effect was not as uh, strong as if you for example snort one line of crystal meth the effect was more subtle and it, it was still a strong effect and if you took two pills or three pills you know you were pretty high but still the methamphetamine uh, consumed orally from a pharmaceutical company is different than snorting black market crystal meth uh, which it's 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 a little different but basically it's the same substance mm. i have less respect for walter white from breaking bad now hearing that <laughs> a german walter white already existed that and he made like premium grade crystal meth in the 30s. <laughs> I mean, Walter Ward was probably pretty good, but uh, Fritz Hauschild, who invented methamphetamine, for sure was better because he also had better equipment and, you know, he, he didn't have to run away like in a, in a, in a trailer or drive around in some desert in, uh, in, in, um, in uh, where is, where's Breaking Bad set in? In New Mexico. In New Mexico, in right? Yeah. yeah. You did a lot of research in the German archives yourself for the book. Did you perhaps come up with any sort of a number about how many ordinary folks, you know, occasionally dabbled or regularly purchased pervitin during those years? No, um, I found the production uh, numbers, like how much was made and um, the, the, the first actual consumer numbers um, that I found were 
dated from 1940 onwards, and they, they, they were the numbers uh, that the German military uh, reported. So these numbers are, um, uh, we, we know these numbers accurately. For example, for the attack on France, which started May 10th, 1940, um, 35 million dosages of uh, methamphetamine were being used. So we know that we know pretty well how many pills the German soldiers actually consumed. Okay, but that's the military, right? There's no, there are no numbers uh, on the civilian population. At least I didn't find them, and I looked very carefully. Um, they're just the reports on how much money the company made with Pevitine and how how much they produced and stuff like that. But I don't know out of the eighty million Germans how many actually used Pevitine. These numbers do not exist. Hmm. Like you said, in 1939, I believe it was Leonardo Conti, the head of the Reich Health Office, expressed a bit of an alarm at the drug's addictive properties and moved to make it prescription only. I wonder, were there any like riots or protests on the streets of major cities or something? I mean, since meth is highly addictive, I imagine folks who were getting it for almost two years, weren't all that happy that they were suddenly cut off. Well, the interesting thing is that the numbers actually started rising after it became a prescription drug. So more people used it once it became a prescription drug, um, which is something that also puzzled me. But I guess pervitine became more and more known. Um, and I guess doctors, you know, just pres prescribed it when, when the people wanted it. So no one was cut off. You just had to uh, go to, you just had, it was just a little bit more difficult to obtain it because you had to get a prescription from your doctor, but that didn't seem to have stopped people from using it. Uh, to the contrary, they used it more after 1939 than before. You couldn't do riots anyhow in Nazi Germany because you would be arrested <laughs> right. immediately. Right. Makes sense. Okay, as you said, in any event, the order did not apply to the military. How did the love affair between the German army, the Wehrmacht, and major quantities of crystal meth begin? Well, there was one guy responsible for it. His name is Otto Ranke. He was a German professor and the head of the so-called um, Physiological Institute of the German army. Um, and he was responsible for, uh, performance enhancement of the, of the soldier. So he was constantly looking for, you know, ways to improve, um, the fighting capability of the German soldier before the war started. And, um, when he read the first reports that methamphetamine, um, prevents sleep or, makes you able to stay awake longer. He thought that this might be of um, tactical advantage uh, in a combat situation if your own men can fight for longer hours than the enemy because every human being obviously gets tired in the evening. Um, so he made tests uh, in 1938 and 1939 um, at the... Um, uh, medical academy uh, of the German army with young 
medical officers. He gave them pervitin and caffeine and uh, placebos and then checked out, you know, these, these tests started at eight in the evening and went all, all through the night until the, the next day in the afternoon. And um, he found that even the people who took um, caffeine at one point fell asleep uh, while the people on pavitine actually didn't fall asleep and could stay awake easily for the, for the whole night. Um, and he concluded that this, you know, would create an advantage uh, for the German army in case they would, you know, attack. Um, so he proposed it to the Surgeon General, his uh, superior, to supply Pavitin officially to the German troops, which his, uh, which his superior actually declined in the attack against Poland because he didn't, basically he didn't understand it or he didn't get it. Uh, but in the attack on Poland, which started World War II in September 1st, 1939, many German soldiers already had it kind of privately in their pockets and, and took it with them to the front. Um, and this professor then made, you know, say he sent out questionnaires to divisions and said, did you already use, did you use pavitine? How was the effect? And many soldiers, um, and commanders wrote back to him, um, that it was actually beneficial for the so-called work they did at the front lines and with backed with those reports that are now all stored in the German military archive in which I read, uh, back, backed with those reports, he made another suggestion uh, in the spring of 1940 to now officially supply the German army with methamphetamine before the attack against the West. And this time his superior actually um, greenlit um, the project and then these millions of dosages were ordered from the Temna company and shipped um, to the uh, to the German troops and distributed and then they were being used from day one on and uh, Ranke actually wrote uh, the so-called stimulant decree which was an official um, guideline that every um, medical officer of the German army received and it uh, detailed you know, when, when an attack starts, when you take the methamphetamine, how many pills each soldier should take, after how many hours they should take the next pill, what are the side effects and stuff like that. What a great name, the stimulant decree. <laughs> this was actually the first time in military history that uh, an army had such a stimulant decree or had some kind of official regulation on on a, a synthetic drug and, 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 and its use. I mean, before armies also had used um, drugs, basically since there's war, there's drugs in war, but these drugs um, that had been used uh, before were, usually, were somehow harmless compared to methamphetamine. They were, for example, alcohol or tobacco. So there have been regulations for armies before concerning, for example, alcohol, but never before has had there been a regulation on such a potent uh, substance. Did they distribute pervitin to ordinary soldiers or to tank battalions and crews or just to everybody who wanted it? Or how did that 
work because it was for the purposes of the blitzkrieg right so the soldiers could could march or drive their tanks for longer well the problem with attacking the west was that the western allies had more manpower and better weaponry and to launch a successful invasion you basically have to have superior manpower and weaponry which the germans didn't have so um the only way they could win this campaign was to surprise um the enemy the british and the french armies by marching through the aden mountains um within 3 days and 3 nights that was that was the goal of the campaign and therefore you know advance so quickly into enemy territory that they could that they would cut off uh the the, the british and french armies that were in the north of Belgium because they thought the Germans would attack there and they were in the south of France. The Ardennes Mountains are in the middle of these defense positions of the Allies. So the trick was to march through the mountains uh, very quickly and not stop at night. Um, and this was seen as basically impossible because uh, you cannot stay awake for three days and three nights. Um, and this was only possible because um, because methamphetamine was used. So basically the Blitzkrieg was a strategy to overpower an enemy that's more powerful than yourself by surprise. And um, this uh, this methamphetamine was kind of fueling this um, surprise tactical movement. Were there any reports, or can we conclusively say that the drugs helped the German army advance so fast. Is there any way of us actually saying that with any degree of certainty? Well, what got me interested was the sentence by um, one of the leading German uh, historians, medicine historians, like he's into, you know, the history of medicine. And, 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 and this, this guy said that without methamphetamine, the Blitzkrieg is unthinkable. So I kind of tried to find what does that mean by you know studying all the reports and um we can actually see and this goes back to your previous question that um the drugs were distributed in a way that would um help the tank divisions to move very quickly and this was this had never been done before in military history that the tank divisions were leading the attack. Usually the, the tanks were kind of slowly coming after the, the men who stormed into enemy territory and then the tanks were kind of backing up their advance. But the Germans used the tanks in the forefront. So the tanks were leading and speeding into enemy territory and this was the big surprise to the Western allies. They never thought that tanks could lead an attack, especially not through mountainous territory where tanks usually, you know, were spoke, were thought of as moving very slowly. But the Germans were using these tanks almost as like race cars. Um, and the tank divisions were consuming the most methamphetamine. Um, so we can see that the methamphetamine distribution was asymmetrical. Most of the meth went into the tank divisions, so the tanks were basically 
full on uh, on meth and uh, their behavior became. Yeah, the tanks were. Well, I don't know if tripping is the right word because that's I always connect tripping with the psychedelics, and I don't know if you're right, tripping right. on meth, but certainly fueled the tanks were certainly fueled by not only gasoline but also by crystal meth, and be, behaved drove very quickly. Behaved, the tank drivers behaved erratically, like they were not they were not behaving like it is you know assumed in the military, you know handbook so uh, the allies were completely stunned by these very strange uh, and quickly moving uh, german tank divisions and they would never have moved in this fashion without crystal meth so crystal meth was at least my research i think shows it uh, one of the decisive factors i mean the whole idea of going through the Aden mountains that that was the decisive idea, but the idea wouldn't have worked without methamphetamine. So um, without methamphetamine, the Western campaign would have been very different. And maybe Germany, Germany would have lost the Western campaign. It's not clear because it's speculation, but it would have been very different. And then, of course, the whole uh, World War II would have been very different. Did they repeat the exercise in the Eastern Front? Yes, of course, because they were uh, extremely successful on the Western Front. So they did the same thing on the Eastern Front when they attacked the Soviet Union and had the same success in the beginning. The first three months um, showed huge victories and territory gains. And in October 1941, um, they, the German army was only a few kilometers uh, west of Moscow. Um, but then the winter came and the the Blitzkrieg basically got stuck in the mud and then froze uh, in, in, in the harsh winter conditions of Russia. And then the Pevitin actually couldn't, wasn't so helpful anymore because they couldn't, you know, use the extra energy to advance because they, the tanks just got stuck. And also the... Um, um, the Russian defense was much better than the French defense. The the Red Army actually put up uh, put up a fight while the French quickly you know gave up. So um, despite their um, successes in the beginning, uh, it wasn't enough to beat the Soviet Union, and it dragged on into this year long war. And in this year long war against the Soviet Union, Pevitin was not really helpful anymore because Pevitin is only good for short um, periods of time. Uh, you, you, can, you can use it to stay awake even for two, three weeks, I mean, with occasional you know, sleeping phases, but you cannot sustain such an energy level for two, three years. So then, then it backfires and... Um, Soldiers become, you know, depleted, depressed, addicted. And this is exactly what happened to the German army. Now, the drug use was not limited to ordinary folks or soldiers. It reached all the way up to the very top. Hermann Göring, the chief of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, was a notorious morphine addict. And of course, even Hitler, who was otherwise, as you said, 
he didn't drink booze, he was a vegetarian, presented himself as a celibate man almost. And as far as we know, didn't have any previous experience with drugs. He himself became, should we say, infatuated with or even addicted to drugs. But maybe let's spend a moment talking about the man who introduced uh, these substances to him first, his personal doctor, Theo Morel. Who was he? Morel was um, an overweight, uh, avant-gardistic um, VIP doctor in Berlin in the 30s. And um, he had a somewhat well-going practice uh, on the main boulevard of Berlin, um, attracting wealthy patients that basically had no disease, but wanted to, you know, feel better or actresses would go to uh, this guy before they had to go on stage and he would give them um, mood enhancing uh, medicines. So he, he was kind of a doctor feel good, not really a quack, but not really a serious doctor. So he was, he was kind of an unusual guy at the time, you know, because there were not these doctors that, then, you know, became quite fashionable, for example, in the United States in the 50s and 60s, were not so, you know, this kind of doctoring was not so known at the time. But Morel was this kind of a, a doctor. So, um, and he believed in vitamins. He was a vitamin uh, specialist and vitamins also were not known really at the time. So he would give his patients injections of uh, vitamin C, for example, intravenous injections of vitamin C or other vitamins. And these uh, injections actually led to um, a boost in, in, in the mood or in also in performance. And um, he treated one man called Hoffmann, who was the photographer of Hitler. And Hoffmann thought that this is a great guy and uh, then introduced uh, Hitler and Morel to each other. And Hitler had suffered for years from stomach cramps. This was in 1936 when they met for the first time. And uh, Morel then gave Hitler uh, his first injections and Hitler loved these injections and um, quickly appointed Morel as his personal physician. And then in a way became addicted to these almost daily injections. So Morel gave Hitler thousands of injections in the course of the nine years that they spent together. They became good friends and Morel was probably the man that Hitler talked to or consulted with the most. Many people were in the higher uh, echelon of the Nazi regime were very suspicious of this guy because he was you know, a bit weird or a bit unusual. And he was around Hitler all the time and he gave him these vitamin injections uh, all the time. So in the beginning, he, di he didn't give Hitler hardcore drugs, but he gave him um, vitamins and um, this actually helped Hitler's uh, health for quite a while. He never became ill. He was always in good shape and his um, belief in his doctor was basically limitless. When did he start to add a little bit more than just vitamins to Hitler's injections? And what was what were these substances? Uh, this started in August 1941 
this was the first time that Hitler became ill since he met Morel. So in the, in the first time he became ill in five years, uh, he had um, the so-called Russian flu, which is basically a, f a very severe flu, which um, made him stay in bed uh, in a critical phase of the campaign against the Soviet Union. So he couldn't go to the military briefing and Hitler was very skeptical always of his generals. He always thought that they um, make bad decisions. So he he asked Morel to give him something stronger than vitamins so he could attend the daily military briefing. <clears throat> and for the first time, then Morel gives him more than just vitamins. He gives him uh, Dolantin, which is an opioid, um, a German uh a brand uh, made by a German company. And he injects this opioid into Hitler and Hitler immediately feels better um, because these opioids are very strong, act, act very strong, very powerful um, agents. So Hitler could actually go to the military briefing. He was quite um, impressed by this uh, medicine and um, asks for it more and more often until um, in 1943, he receives for the first time an even stronger opioid, which was called Oikodal, which is today known as Oxycodone, which is the very opioid that created the opioid crisis in the United States. So this was had been a German product before the, before the end of the war. And Hitler really gets um, addicted to this Oikodal opioid, um, in 1944 and uses it in quite high quantities, uh, 20 milligrams uh, per injection. Um, during some phases of the war, every second day. So that's a uh, very typical behavior of, of, of an addict, basically. Uh, did it stop there or did Hitler start receiving even more potent drugs even more regularly? How did this um, addiction then spiral? Oikodal is um, the most potent drug you can take. I mean, if you inject um, 20 milligrams intravenously of Oikodal, then you experience the strongest high that you can imagine. It's a stronger high than heroin. So this was, oh this was already a peak experience for Hitler. Um, <laughs> But he also took, you know, he then became, you know, he, he started liking potent substances. Um, and um, he also consumed other things like uh, hormones. Morel was very experimental um, with the substances. And he, he gave Hitler quite a lot of hormone injections, which he thought, and Hitler thought as well, that they would boost his immune system, even though they did actually the, the opposite. Um, then there was a time in um, after the bomb attack against Hitler on July 20th, 1944, which left Hitler quite injured. His eardrums were blown and um, he had received many wood splinters into his body. And um, after, after that, um, that attack by Stauffenberg on July 20th, 1944, the so-called Operation Valkyrie, Hitler started using also cocaine um, for, um, until October. So from end of July till October, he regularly consumed cocaine 
against the pain in his ears. And so he became basically um, a polytoxic, uh, manic uh, drug user. And um, he loved to experiment with all kinds of things. But Oikodal, the, 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 the very potent opioid, um, stayed his favorite drug uh, until the end. So basically he was receiving oxy and cocaine what on a daily basis or every second day or after the operation valkyrie he received cocaine uh, on a daily basis and then oxy every other day so he was that was a pretty you know drug intense phase of the dictator's uh, life it was basically what later was called speedball if you consume um an upper which is cocaine and a down and a downer, which is a, an opioid. At the same time, you have like very strong, very strong drug experience. So Hitler basically removed himself more and more from reality and moved into artificial worlds where his mood was still somehow intact, despite the catastrophic, you know, news that he received from his generals from the front. I mean, it's kind of mental that because Hitler was a bit gassy in the beginning, he ended up becoming basically a full-blown drug addict. Did no one in Hitler's inner circle connect the dots kind of between Hitler's taking these these injections and his sudden outburst of energy and elevated mood, as you put it? Well, people did become quite suspicious of morale, Um Especially after 1943, there are more and more critical reports that I found uh, on the doctor because Morel would never disclose what he gave Hitler. And Hitler's health, which had been quite good until 1941-42, started to shift. And at the same time, like in 42-43, the success of the German army started to stop. Um, so because Hitler made more and more irrational and catastrophic decisions, actually, uh, while before until 1942, he was quite successful. Um, so no one questioned anything. Um, but people started questioning, um, especially after the defeat in Stalingrad, which was a turning point in the second world war and, uh, started and it was hard to criticize Hitler himself because you quickly ended up dead if you criticized um, the leader, the Führer. But you could criticize Morel. So Morel got more and more of the blame. And um, for example, Goebbels, um, the minister for propaganda, he became quite skeptical of Morel. And um, Himmler, the head of the SS, became very skeptical and critical of Morel. And they actually tried to remove morale uh, from Hitler's, uh, but Hitler stuck to his personal physician until the end. And in, I mean, Hitler called the shots. So all the attempts to remove uh, morale were unsuccessful. Are there some instances when you can pinpoint exact moments when you believe Hitler's drug use contributed to poor or even, as you said, erratic decision making that proved detrimental to the war effort? Or was it just a general de decline from 1942 onwards? Well, fortunately, the notes that Morel left and which are stored in the federal archives uh, of Germany now, 
are quite elaborate and precise so we can um, connect certain decisions or we can say that certain decisions were made while Hitler was on certain drugs and obviously we cannot prove that without the drugs he would have you know come to a different decision but we can say that we can see and prove that for example his decision uh, in the fall of 1944 to launch a second offensive in the west is the so-called second Aden offensive which was catastrophic for the german army uh, he made this decision against all you know military judgment and you know against reality basically while he was high on cocaine and obviously we know that cocaine uh, changes your decision making it makes you overconfident um, so in that case that was a very bad decision I mean uh, the better decision would have been to you know secure positions and retreats uh, and he did like the he he did the opposite. He said we have to go into the offensive again, and you don't go into into the offensive if you don't have the military means to do so. Um, and the German generals were shocked when he announced in late October 1944 that they would go into the offensive again in the West against the you know advancing United States Army. So this was um, you can link this decision, which basically led to the final defeat of the so-called Third Reich to the cocaine use. Or another example is uh, a decisive meeting he had with uh, Mussolini, the Italian dictator who was his closest uh, ally. He met him uh, for a meeting in July 1943 when Mussolini wanted to talk with Hitler about ending the war, about you know making a truce with the West. And because he, Mussolini actually wanted to break away, he wanted to stop the war basically because he, he saw that it was lost, a lost cause. And for this meeting, actually Hitler for the first time used Oikodal and it made him extremely euphoric. And there are reports about this uh, meeting that Hitler talked for uh, several hours nonstop without <laughs> letting Mussolini say one single word. Um, so this was, uh, you know, very, very clearly a drug-induced uh, state that led to a result in a in a very important meeting that probably would have been very different if the two would have, you know, sat together and rationally discussed uh, the situation on the battlefield. A Hitler moving units that don't exist anymore on the map is, of course, immortalized in the movie Der Untergang or the downfall, but they don't show any drug use there, of course. Did Hitler take drugs up until the end, up until his suicide in the bunker in Berlin? Well, I think this is one of the big problems of this movie, that uh, it doesn't show Hitler's drug use and therefore cannot really explain um, Hitler's behavior at all. So this that's why the movie is not really accurate. But it is actually quite interesting what happens in the bunker, where the movie also is set and f focuses on these, these times in the bunker. Um, I mean, the bunker into which Hitler moved in January 1945 under his office in Berlin um, only had two bedrooms. So 
only Hitler had a bedroom and his doctor Morel, all the other, you know, high Nazis were not staying in the bunker. So it's kind of, it kind of sheds a light already on what Hitler prioritized there. I mean, he only took, you know, he didn't take his closest, he didn't take Himmler or Goebbels or Göring into the bunker. He took Morel into his bunker. So his doctor would be next to him and, and could supply him at all times. Um, and Morel's reports from th this time are quite interesting because he has problems finding the drugs that Hitler has become addicted to because the Allies, uh, especially the British, started bombing German pharmaceutical companies late in the war. And in December 1944, the Merck company who produces Oikodal, produced Oikodal, was completely destroyed. And... Um, suddenly uh, supplies ran out even for Hitler and um, Morel then um, hops on a motorcycle which is quite unusual for him because as I stated before he was quite overweight and he drives on a motorcycle through bombed out Berlin driving from pharmacy to pharmacy to try to find the, me the medicines or the drugs that uh, his patient A as he called Hitler in his notes um, needed. So also the bunker time was quite an intense um, pharmaceutical uh, episode. I just have a couple of questions uh, left. A lot of historians are convinced that Hitler suffered from Parkinson's disease. That bit is kind of implied in the movie with, with the Hitler's famous shakes behind his back. Do you think the deteriorate, deteriorating mental state was a result of the disease or long-term drug use or both? Well, I mean, Morel was a trained doctor, so he knew what Parkinson's is, obviously. And uh, he never, he always writes when Hitler has a disease. He always writes it in his notes. He never writes that Hitler has Parkinson's. And he never gives Hitler any drugs that you give to a Parkinson's patient. So I think that historians later on interpreted the shaking of Hitler as Parkinson's because they didn't have, you know, the information or didn't look for the information that the shaking was actually, the tremor was actually coming from a withdrawal from opioids, which I think is a more plausible explanation. I mean, he could have had Parkinson's also, and maybe Morel didn't detect it. It's possible, but I think it's, it's more plausible that this comes from uh, drug withdrawal. What happened to Morel after Hitler's suicide? Well, Goebbels became more and more skeptical of Morel, and there's a he has a conversation with Hitler. Um, basically, he's telling Hitler that you know Morel made him addicted to opioids, and that's where his you know failing health is now coming from, and. Um, Hitler at one point must have believed Goebbels because on April, I think it was the 22nd, um, a few days before he committed suicide, he fired uh, Morel, yelling at him, you have been giving me opioids all the time, you made me, it turned me into a drug addict, uh, get the hell out of the bunker. And um, he actually pointed a gun at Morel, but he didn't shoot it, but oh. he, he, did, he did send Morel out of the bunker and then Morel 
manages to catch one of the last planes out of destroyed Berlin and flies to Bavaria, where he had kept a private lab all, all these years. And he goes into this lab and um, basically stays there until the end of the war and stays there also in May 1945 when the Americans start occupying um, Bavaria and um, and then arrest Morel uh, and then question Morel for quite a long time. Like he stays in American custody for over a year because the Americans try to figure out whether he's also a war criminal, whether they should put him on trial in Nuremberg, which they don't because the only crime, if crime is the right word, that Morel committed was that he you know, gave drugs to Hitler. And um, so maybe he was even a hero in a way because he destroyed Hitler's health involuntarily. So the Americans <laughs> never put him on trial. They just... Once they're done with him, once they're done interrogating him, um, they drive him to the Munich train station and, and dump him outside the Munich train station and just leave him, leave him there. And he lives out the rest of his life as a practicing doctor somewhere around Munich or? I guess the Americans didn't treat him very well during custody. Uh, and he was... He was not doing his, his his health was not very good when they dump him outside the Munich train station. He claimed later on that they actually tortured him, that they removed his fingernails and toenails so he would talk. Um, but this, I don't know if that's true. That's only what he claimed. And he actually dies in a hospital in Bavaria a few months after the Americans release him. So he never he never he never recovers from from the American custody fully. He died in his in his late 50s. Last question. At the end, we come to the very tricky subject of responsibility. Maybe less in the case of Hitler, since he detailed his ideas and plans already in Mein Kampf, which was published in 1925, long before he even met Theo Morel. But if indeed, as you said, large chunks of population found them, themselves in a chemically altered state, the case of diminished co collective responsibility could potentially be made. How do you deal with that? I don't really see how this case can be made. Um, I mean, if you look at the law, and my father was a, quite a high judge in Germany, and I spoke with him at length about this, and uh, he said that if you commit a crime under the influence of a narcotic, for example, under the influence of methamphetamine, um, it does not really lessen your responsibility. Um, the only way it would be lessened was if you were planning a crime while you were intoxicated and you didn't really know what you were doing at all. But even if you like plan a murder and then you commit the murder while you are on methamphetamine, it does not, you know, get you off the hook at all, actually. That's at least how the German law works. And this is also how I feel. I mean, the perpetrators during the so-called Third Reich, they always knew what they were doing. And if you're on crystal meth, you know what you're doing. I mean, it's not that you're like 
I mean, if you drink a lot of alcohol, there might be a point where you don't know exactly anymore what you're doing, but this, the effect of crystal meth is quite different. You're, you're always very clear in, in your head. You can think, you know, very clearly actually. So, uh, to me, it does not, um, lessen responsibility at all, actually. And as you said, the Nazi ideas and ideology was formed without, you know, the use of drugs. It was, um, it was pre-drug. And um, let's say you have a concentration camp guard who has to, you know, make it through his 12-hour shift. Uh, I mean, he's a concentration camp guard. He knows what's going on in the concentration camp. It does not lessen his responsibility if he uses pavitine so he could be on a higher alert during his, you know, during his shift. I don't, I don't actually see this, this argument at all. Right. I think maybe a lot of the confusion comes from, like you said before, the American sort of campaign against these drugs, because I also thought that crystal meth makes you trip like a psychedelic or something. No, I guess with a psychedelic, it would be different. If you take a strong psychedelic and you kind of actually don't know anymore what you're doing, even though also on psychedelics, I mean, usually you're even more clear of what you're doing than. Yeah. It's an interesting discussion. Norman, thank you so much. This was a fascinating, absolutely fascinating conversation. I wish we could talk even more. I really urge everybody to get blitzed. It's such a fantastic read. Um, where can people get it? I'm assuming all fine e-bookstores everywhere, right? Yeah, I think you can get it in in book in each bookshop. Do you have any social media that you would like to put out there where people can follow your work? Um, yeah, I guess on Instagram you can follow me on Norman Oler. Um, but I think the best is not to use social media and just read books. So you don't need to follow me. You can just read the you're, books. You're not the first guest to say that. Um, <laughs> all right. And what are you working on right now? I hear you're working on something super interesting again. I am interested in psychedelic substances, actually. And I was uh, looking at um, LSD in particular because um, I read reports that LSD can be beneficial against uh, dementia, for example. And dementia is one of the pressing um, problems of of uh you know of the near future so i was curious about uh, about the question of why lsd actually became illegal and i researched the very early history of lsd it was developed in 1943 and the swiss company who um, developed it sandos which today is novartis um, they made some crucial uh, decisions in the in the mid and late 40s and early 50s, uh, which actually made you know the whole psychedelic, the, the whole group of psychedelic substances uh, illegal. Um, things happened in America that um, that were very that are actually very interesting to research, and uh, so this is my new book, and it's called Tripped in English, and it will appear in the U.S. Um, in April 24. All right. I really hope we get to talk about it once Why you not? release the book. 
It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Norman. Pleasures on my side. I also thank you for the interest and um, have a good day. Oi, thank you for listening to the episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe and follow on YouTube, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. As always, eternal glory and gratitude to my producers who are supporting this show on Patreon. The kings and queens, Gordon, Yurechuk, Lorenzo, Veronica, Mila, Carmen and Taichi. Without you, this pot would not have been possible at all. If you'd like to become a certified Tovarish or Tovarishica of the show too, head to Patreon, find Smart Cookies podcast on there and uh, become one. It's as simple as that. Thank you.